0: teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father to, or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban Of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come down from within, and they defile a person. The Gospel of the Lord.
1: Almighty God, we uh, come before you, and it is a dangerous thing to come before uh, the Lord who is really there. And it is, a, on the one hand, a dangerous thing because you open our hearts and you show us what's there. And that can be frightening. And yet we come uh, to you who, uh, to whom all hearts are known, uh, all, all hearts open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid. That's a bit scary, but we also come to the one who can cleanse us uh, and who has... Uh, given all that we might be cleansed. And so there is no safer place for us to be than before you. And so it is our desire uh, to invite you to do the work that needs to be done within our lives and within our hearts. So, Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us as we consider your word and impart the reality that we will now describe. And we pray this in Jesus' name amen. Please have a seat. And uh, turn back to the uh, Mark reading, which is on page seven. And uh, here's the deal. Um, in this reading, Jesus unveils the dirty heart of religion for us. So this is going to be fun. Um, one of the things that I find really compelling about Jesus, here's what I mean. One of the things I find really compelling about Jesus is, uh, and one of the reasons why I find Jesus... Um, Worthy of so much confidence and trust is that I don't know anybody that uh, critiques religion more insightfully than Jesus does Uh, I I think it's pretty obvious that we're living right now in a time of relatively low levels of confidence and trust in what we might call organized religion And uh, that's true of folks who do not identify as Christians who are outside the church It is also true of those who are inside the church for all kinds of reasons Uh, Many of us have seen the corruptions and the failings and uh, the hypocrisies of the church and therefore uh, there's a kind of ongoing question that many of us ask all of us really need to ask at some point and that is simply um, you know how trustworthy is the church Uh, how trustworthy is Christianity. It's a question you need to ask if you're uh, in evaluating whether or not Jesus is somebody to be trusted. It's, somebody, it's a question that needs to be asked for those of us who are inside the church. But here's the thing. If you go deep in Jesus, and if you read Jesus, and if you watch what it is that he does, I, I think you'll find that Jesus does not evade that question. He sharpens that question. And like I said, I don't know anybody who uh, analyzes toxic religion more insightfully than Jesus does. And so there's a way in which I want to encourage you, if those are the questions that are up for you, to look at Jesus and let him be your guide. I think you'll find it an insightful one. And you can read uh, Frederick Nietzsche or Christopher Hitchens or, or a more contemporary critic of religion, but I think you may find that if you read those and then you go to Jesus, you'll find that Jesus anticipates a whole bunch of those of their best points 2,000 years before they do. But what's more, is that not only does Jesus critique toxic religion, and he does, and he's about ready to do that. We're gonna look at it in the text. But not only does he critique toxic religion, he, he diagnoses the problem, but he also provides a treatment. And that's one of the things that makes Jesus so unique. And I think that explains something. If you look at the history of Christianity, you'll see that uh, Christians have done some just deplorable things. Lots of times. And yet, our most devastating critic, Jesus, is also the center of our faith. And I think that explains part of the reason why, despite our many failures, the history of Christianity is a, is, a, is a story of Christianity very often becoming unhealthy, but then slamming up against Jesus. And in that encounter with Jesus Christ, what comes out of that is renewal and reform and revival. And so Christianity breaks out again in new, uh, with a new vigor very often after some of our darkest times. And the reason that that can happen is because Jesus is the center of our faith. And as we come in contact with Jesus, we continually find him diagnosing our disease, but also providing a treatment. And I think that's one reason to trust Jesus. And our reading gives us just a little taste of this. Our reading gives us a little taste of how Jesus critiques religion. It's not all of Jesus' critique of religion, but it's a little bit of it. And this reading gives us some help and some tools in discerning toxic religion from healthy Christianity. Because in this passage, as I said at the beginning, Jesus uh, displays the dirty heart of religion. But you know what he also does? He points the way for that heart to be cleansed and to provide a cleansing that only he can give. So, we're going to look at that. And and as we look at this reading, I want to offer three questions derived from the text that can help us discern uh, the health of our Christianity. And and here here they are. Is my Christianity adding a demand that that God has not required? Are we adding something to God's word? Number two, is my Christianity evading something that God has required? And thirdly, and finally, uh, how does all of that impact my heart? Let me explain. Take a look at the text. Let me set the scene. Uh, Jesus, at this point in his ministry, he's gaining in popularity. And a bunch of religious leaders, largely Pharisees, come and, uh, to kind of watch what's going on and evaluate him. And as they look at Jesus in his ministry, they find something that alarms them. In particular, they find that Jesus's students uh, are inconsistent when it comes to hand washing. Everybody gasp. I know, I know, I know. Some of some of us in this room are inconsistent about washing, but you're never going to admit it, are you? Anyways, now um, the the, uh, the they looked at, some of Jesus' followers washed their hands, and some of them didn't. Now here's the deal, okay? This is not about COVID. Everybody say this is not about COVID. <laughs> yeah, you kind of mumbled that. That that wasn't very good. But anyways, okay. Um, the, the, uh, the, the the they're not talking about germs in this situation. They're talking about religious defilement. So, uh, in the Jewish uh, tradition, in the Jewish community at that time, um, they read the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and they recognized that one of the key themes in the Old Testament is um, that God wants Israel to be uh, set apart, holy, different in a good way, different like God is different, dedicated to God. And one way they described this idea of being holy, dedicated to God, different in a good way, different like God is different is through the image of being religiously clean and not dirty, clean and not defiled. Now, in order to express some of that, some in the Jewish community, especially Pharisees, though it was wider than that, developed certain traditions about hand washing and washing a bunch of other things. You can read it in the text. And these uh, rituals of washing were aimed at uh, emphasizing, expressing, uh, communicating the idea and the importance of religious cleanness, holiness, dedication to God. Now, what's important for our reading is that the the specifics of these washings were not required by Old Testament law. There was washings required, especially for the priests, but um, these specific washings were not required. They were traditions added later uh, in a body of tradition called the Tradition of the Elders. And if you look, as I said, at verse 1, it appears that Jesus' followers were a bit inconsistent about this. Uh, Some of Jesus' followers seem to have followed these washings pretty rigorously, and some of them did not, which suggests that for Jesus and his uh, students, these were optional. They they were, you may, but you don't, you, you, you must. And that's where the conflict comes, because at least these Pharisees that are talking to Jesus here are trying to enforce these traditions as if they were God's commands. And verse 7, Jesus doesn't go on for it. And he quotes the Hebrew Scriptures. He quotes uh, uh, Isaiah, and he says, uh, You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Put a bookmark there. We're going to come back to that, because that's really the heart of the matter. Don't mean that as a pun. And then he says this, In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrine the commandments of men. Focus on that last line. Teaching his doctrine the commandments of men. Now, this captures uh, a common characteristic of toxic religion. There is very often a subtle eclipse of God's word by something that's not God's word, namely the commands of humanity, people. And sometimes it works ah, something like this. Uh, God's word, the scriptures require this, but you know what? I think we can do better. Let's go here. Let's go here, and you know what? If we go here, it'll help insulate us and make sure we don't cross this line. If we put the line here, we won't cross this line, plus extra credit. You know, who's not in for that, right? And some of you are thinking, I never did extra credit on the test, but anyways, Now, it sounds pious, but there's a subtle inversion of authority. God's authority is supplemented and therefore displaced by human authority. And whenever we subvert God's authority with human authority, that's one definition of something called sin. Now, Emmanuel, you can look down uh, the history of the church and you can find this all over the place. I know the Anglican tradition best. And let me tell you, we're ninjas. We have done this all around the bend. Not so much in our official doctrine and liturgies and official texts. In fact, as I've worked through this sex, I'm not gonna talk about this. You can ask me about this later if it's of interest. I've found myself grateful for our official doctrine and liturgies uh, and texts, but this dynamic happens all the time in just the popular church culture that develops in a particular generation, and it shifts in form all the time, but you can see it all over the place. And I would imagine, I, I'm quite confident, that some of the toxic elements in Christian culture today happen because we subtly add demands that God is not required. And I encourage you to think about it and see if the Lord brings up any illustrations. Because when you're evaluating a church or a tradition or or a movement, you can ask the question, does this tradition, church, movement demand practices that God has not required? And if it does, what does that mean? But then there's a second question. The second question is, does the tradition or my Christianity evade something that God does require? Because that's another trick. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, notice the Jesus keeps on going back to Scripture. For Moses says, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his, or tells his father and mother, Whatever you I would have gained from me, whatever you would have gained from me is now Corban, that is, given to God. And you will no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, can you see that this example works differently? In the first scenario, they're adding, or they're adding a demand that God has not required. But here, they evade something that God does require in a really, really clever way. So honoring father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments, right? Um, It's a non-negotiable. However, they had a clever way of getting around it. We're not exactly sure what all went into the logic, but it might have been something like this. They know that God wants them to honor their father and mother, which oftentimes carries financial uh, responsibilities. But they also know that giving to God, like giving to the temple, stuff like that, is really important. And after all, honoring God, which one's more important, team? Honoring God or honoring your father and your mother? And therefore... they could create a logic that allowed them to uh, pit these commands or responsibilities over and against each other in such a way that one of them gets canceled. And we do it all the time. And sometimes we can take bits of the Bible and imagine that there's not an inner coherence. And then we can say something like, the Bible says this, but on the other hand, the Bible says that. And then we can figure out a way of following one uh, and keeping the other one at arm's distance. And we never say it that way because that would be too obvious. But the point is, team, there is something deep within the human heart that is drawn towards finding clever ways to evade and dodge God's word. And sometimes... Very often, we justify it with religious-sounding arguments. Don't you dare say that I'm not religious. And just like the first example, it's a subtle way of inverting authority. We can invert God's authority by uh, demanding something that he has not required, putting ourselves in the place of God. We can also invert God's authority by evading something that God does require, and we can use religious justifications for both. And remember, the one definition of sin is when we invert God's authority. We replace God's authority with our own. And this text tells us that religious garb is a really great way to hide it. So three questions. Uh, Does my Christianity add something, add a demand that God is not required? Does my Christianity evade something that God has required? But then the third question has to do with the heart. And this is really the heart of the matter. Uh, How does it impact my soul? Look back at the text, and remember what I said about defilement and cleanliness. One of the key themes in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament is the idea of being clean before God, which is an image of being set apart for God, uh, different like God is in a good way, uh, holy and dedicated to him. And the Pharisees and some others tried to express it through washing. Uh, The wider Jewish community often expressed it through kosher eating. Um, and, And Jesus, in this reading, wants to go down underneath and says that the real problem of toxic religion is a problem in the heart of all of humanity. Verse 14, I'll kind of summarize it, and then we'll look at verse 20. Basically, he says, listen, it's not what you eat that makes you uh, clean before God. Eating the right thing isn't going to make you clean. Eating the wrong thing isn't going to make you unclean. There's something deeper. Verse 20 says this. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, uh, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Uh, All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. I read that list really quickly. That's probably the safest way to read it. but you might want to slow down and put a seatbelt on. It's devastating. And for some of us, this is going to be very, very troubling, because, in fact, if this is troubling, then (laughs) you're probably actually hearing it. Um, Jesus is claiming that the human heart is not naturally good. Jesus is claiming that the human heart uh, germinates evil. The problem's in here. And that's gonna be really hard for some of us to buy. However, if, if it's really hard for you to buy, then just keep in mind who's telling you this. Uh, Jesus knows all about toxic religion. He's a victim of toxic religion. In fact, he kill, it killed him. He's got street credibility. If it's true that the human heart naturally produces evil, then it explains why toxic religion is so pernicious and so pervasive. Toxic religion, by adding a demand that God is not required, or by evading something that God has required, is always trying to gaslight God. It's always trying to say, "Uh, listen, no, 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 I'm fine. If I wasn't fine, I wouldn't be doing the extra credit. What are you talking to me about? I have done this and this and this and this. Don't talk to me about this other thing. Look over here. The problem isn't with me this toxic religion or toxic religion says says uh i have i have thought this through i have prayed this through i've looked at the text and i've figured out a way that this works and that works in such a way that i am fulfilling this command to talk to me about that other one it's gaslighting and the problem with it is that it we're the ones that get fooled we're the ones that get fooled very often uh, we, you, you, we, we all know that religious people do terrible things because some of us are religious people who have done terrible things. And, and one of the things that happens is you know, everybody else is like, hey, why did you do that terrible thing? Because you're supposed to be religious. But you know who's most shocked of it? Very often, most shocked of it is, is me. Most shocked of it is the one who is doing the wicked thing but thought that religion would keep me from doing the wicked thing. But we find out sometimes too late that our religion has been exterior and it has not touched or changed my heart. We're the ones that are fooled. And can you feel how devastating Jesus' critique is? But here's the thing, and, and, and this is what I said at the beginning, Jesus diagnosed, and his diagnosis is devastating, but he also gives us a treatment. I mean, because we could just give up on religion, right? I mean, that's not uncommon. But here's the problem. If evil germinates within the human heart, then getting up on religion isn't necessarily going to solve the problem because our, the heart is still going to germinate evil after we're not religious. What we need is something that can deal with the human heart, that can deal with the germinating heart that leans towards evil. And that's what Jesus does. And that's what makes him so unique. Jesus diagnoses the problem, but he's also the physician who can treat it. How does he do that? Well, Go back to the Old Testament, go back to the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, Jesus uh, uh, agrees with uh, Isaiah. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. That's the critical problem. But there's also the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel came to the same conclusion as Isaiah and Jesus, that the problem is the human heart. Uh, But he anticipated that the only way this could be resolved is if somehow God arranges a spiritual heart transplant. Let me read it to you. This is Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, verse 25. It says this. This is God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Do you hear the clean, unclean? And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, that's the promise that Jesus came to fulfill. And one of the things he realized as you read through the life of Jesus and listen to his teaching is that Jesus' heart works differently than ours. Jesus is uh, uh, treated horribly, but instead of hating his enemies, he loves them. Even though he's God in human form and everything belongs to him, he comes not to be served but to serve. That's a heart that works differently. Uh, Even though he's innocent, he allows himself to be murdered, but in the midst of the murder, he's loving his murderers. His heart works differently than ours. But you can also see how his heart works differently than ours in the way he relates to God's word. He neither adds to it nor evades it, but he always fulfills it. Jesus' heart works differently than ours. But throughout his ministry and through his death and his resurrection, he is offered to us as this I will give you something of my own heart. Jesus says to us, Come with your toxic religion and the heart that germinates it, come to me. And I gave my life for you. I knew all about toxic religion. My eyes were wide open. I have never been gaslit or fooled by your toxic religion. I've known it from the beginning. To, you, to him, all hearts are open, all desires known, and from him, no secrets are hidden. He's not naive. He knows. And he says, bring your worst. Bring the dirty heart of religion. Bring it to me and I will nail it to the cross and it will die the death it deserves in my own death. But then by my resurrection, I will pour out my spirit into you and I will give you a new heart and I will reorient your heart from self to the love of God. He's the best critic of religion I know and he's the only one who can heal it. And Emmanuel, when God does that, when Jesus does that, when he diagnoses us and then gives us a new heart and over time uh, pours out his spirit continually, synchronizing our hearts with his own, what will happen is this. We will come back to God's word and we will see the way we've added demands that he is not required and it'll break our hearts. Get ready for tears. And we will see the ways that we have evaded him and it will break our hearts and we will weep. But we will weep with hope and our tears and our grief will lead us to a repentance and we will lead us again to Jesus Christ. And there at the cross of Christ, we will uh, feed moment by moment and breath by breath upon his mercy. And there as we receive his cleansing, in that receiving of cleansing, our hearts are being shifted. And so we will desire that the Word of God will continually unveil our hearts and transform us day by day over the course of our lives until we see Christ and are like Him. And, friends, that's the mark of healthy Christianity. That's the mark of a healthy church and a healthy tradition. We must be a people who are captivated by Jesus Christ. Jesus will lead us to God's word. There our hearts will be exposed. And there again and again, Jesus will cleanse us and fill us with his Holy Spirit so that our hearts are synchronized with Christ's. Can you see how it works? That's where we're going, Emmanuel. And we need to ask the Lord to hasten our progress. Because that is the path of renewal and revival and reformation, and that is the only way that we can offer this world any gift of value, because the only gift of value we have is the one who has diagnosed our souls and healed us. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel, And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emanuelanglicannyc.com give.